Welcome into the College Basketball Bonanza. I am Nicholas Sodell. Nick Keneally is with me. We're back in person again at the Cronkite School in downtown Phoenix as we get set to embark on the spring 2023 semester. And first off, how was your break? How was your new year? It was great, you know, just, you know, relaxing with the family, relaxing with friends, and most importantly, watching some great college basketball. Yeah, for sure. And we're going into the second full week of 2023 and the spring semester amidst one of the crazier weeks I can recall in recent memory in college basketball. We were talking about it before we started recording. It's a wild world right now in the sport. Uh, but to get to one of the more important stories of the sport right now, uh, Texas firing Chris Beard with cause after the domestic violence charge he had back last month. It's been a developing situation there over the course of the month. And so they fire him Thursday with cause. Two days before that, they, they were still running a acting head coach uh, with Rodney Terry uh, two days before that firing came. And this is one of the more interesting results of the week. Kansas State dropping 116 points in Austin, Texas, a place that looked so terrifying to opposing schools. I mean, let's remember what Texas did with Beard in the non-conference schedule. Absolutely rolling over Gonzaga, beating a Creighton team that was just making shots to just stay in the game. For Kansas State to go into Austin and do what they did, 13-24 from deep, 23-36 inside the arc. A lot of teams struggle inside the arc at times. That's huge for them. I mean, 31 of 33 from the free throw line. This is a performance offensively unlike anything I can recall in recent memory. I mean, this, this is unbelievable for them. I mean, and going into the season, people were putting, you know, the Moody Center uh, down in Austin up there with, you know, with Kansas for, with, for having one of the most, you know, terrifying home, uh, home court advantages. And for Kansas State, a currently unranked team, saying currently because, oh, that is going to change when the new AP polls come out. Um, but for them to go in and have such a dominant offensive performance where, where schools don't usually have that, it's, it's shaking up the entirety of not only the Texas program, but this Kansas State program that has been red hot this year. Yeah, we're going to talk a lot more about Kansas State later mm -hmm. on in the show. I mean, you look at it from a Texas perspective, this was actually a really decent offensive performance. Mm -hmm. I mean, 11-27 from three, really good inside the arc, a 2-1 to one assist to turnover ratio. I mean, this was a really good offensive performance. And Tyrese Hunter and Marcus Carr both scoring more than 25. Shardabari Rice with 16 off the bench. I mean, this was a really good offensive performance, yet... They just couldn't stop Kansas State to save their life. I think that was the biggest deal about this. This is a lot more about Kansas State going into Austin, dropping 116 points, winning the game by 13, than it is about Texas. Oh, yeah. I mean, it just seemed like it was a anything you could do, I could do better type of situation. I mean, Texas shot 41% from three, but Kansas State turns around and shoots 54%. Texas shoots 85% for the free throw line, which is very passable. Kansas shoots 94%, going 31 for 33. I mean, they were just outmatched in every single statistic. Texas got some good assists. Kansas State outdid them. Te Texas rebounded pretty well. Kansas State outdid them. It seemed like even though Texas did great, 
statistically and on the court, Kansas State had an answer for everything on the offensive side of the ball. Yeah, absolutely. And again, we'll talk a lot more about Kansas State and their situation, but you, I mean, we both mentioned that 31 or 33 free throw mark. You may not see a better mark than this entire year than that, the mm-hmm. free throw line. To do that on the road, it was been conceivably one of the most feared places to play in the Big 12, what Texas had done in the, in the first non-conference slate and then that building, oh my God. I mean, oh my God. That, that's unbelievable. It, it, it truly is. And then you get into, later on this week with Texas, Chris Beard being fired. Two days after that on Saturday, exact opposite. A 56-46 win on the road in a game that really is more of the typical Big 12-style play. You grind it out on the road, you get the heck out of there with a win, and move on with your life. 56-46, neither team could make too many threes in this game. And, and one of those performances in Texas really had a, had a really good closeout in order to win this game. I mean, you look at guys like Amarcus Carr or Timmy Allen, 12 and 11 points respectively is enough for them to be major contributors. Just, you want to talk about two completely different games. This is it, in a nutshell. I mean, this is what you expect from, you know, a Texas defense that has been, you know, analytically ranked pretty highly this season. This type of 46-point, you know, only giving up 46 points to Oklahoma State, this is more of what you expect, that that grittiness. It was a lot of great rebounding from the Longhorns. It was holding Oklahoma State to putting up bad shots. It was a great Longhorns performance, and, you know, if they can embody this more going forward, um, in their you know pretty pretty difficult upcoming schedule being in the Big Twelve, um, they can finish out the season uh, pretty pretty well under Rodney Terry, um, as this team has been performing pretty decently since Chris Beard's uh, leave. Um, just you know excluding that Kansas State game, they've been pretty pretty much on top of their game. So if they can perform like they did against against the Cowboys, it, there shouldn't be too many questions for their encore. Performance. Yeah, and that's one of the things I really wanted to get into as well, but just to look at Texas in that particular game, like I said, you, you grind it out on the road, get out of there. I mean, that's so much what the Big 12 is all about, and there's a gauntlet, you know, surviving certain games which your shot is not on and using your defense to get the job done. This is one of those types of games, and every road game is so difficult for everyone. Every single time, so hard to win those games. And so for Texas to get a win there in Stillwater is huge for their national perception in a week that everything has gone haywire. And just to build off, off of your point, Rodney Terry, now interim head coach, and you look at what he's done in the past, he led Fresno State into the Mountain West out of the whack, led him to an NCAA tournament in 2016, and then he went to Utah, took them in about three years from nearly out of the top 300 nationally, analytically, to very respectable team inside that top 150 in 2020-21 despite a 12-12 and record and what was really a smaller schedule for everybody outside of their own conference and particularly for UTEP and Conference USA a weird year too when you were playing teams twice in a row. So that that's also something to consider there. And Terry, he did spend also nine years as an assistant at Texas under Rick Barnes. So you have someone here who knows the program very, very well. And I think that's crucial for Texas and for Terry himself when you step into a league with so many great teams and so many great coaches. I think that is so critical for him. Rodney Terry, I think he is going to lose a bunch of coaching battles late game in the conference. 
and that could hurt Texas. But I also think the talent is 100% here to where this team's going to be fine. Now, will that translate into the NCAA tournament? We'll have to find that out because that was a big one of the big reasons why Texas hired Chris Beard in the first place was to get over the hump that Shaka Smart just couldn't seem to get over. But I think it'll be very fascinating just to see what this team ends up doing. Certainly a team that can still go out and grab a top four seed line, still grab a very favorable spot to get into the second weekend. But I think we'll have to see just how much having someone like Rodney Terry, who has not been a head coach at a power conference level, instead of an experienced Chris Beard, I'm very curious to see how that's going to play out, Ned. I mean, yeah, you discussed the differences perhaps um, in these late-game situations where, you know, they could struggle. Um, their strategy might be a little bit little bit off because of, you know, that that lack of experience. But, I mean, he's, he's shown uh, to be uh, pretty on top of, you know, how how they play as a team with that game against Oklahoma State. I think that was a very, very important game um, for his, you know, new tenure uh, as the head coach here or acting head coach. Um, but it's just going to be it's going to be learning experiences throughout this season. I don't expect uh, Ter- Coach Terry to be head coach next year for the Longhorns. I think, of course, they're going to be looking elsewhere. Um, but just to close out this season, um, they have the talent to go far. It's just once you get to March, when you get in these, you know, constant close, close games um, with these high pressure scenarios, uh, is he going to be able to to lead his team? That's really the question here. Yeah, with how quickly the coaching carousel develops nowadays, this is now an audition for Rodney Terry to really get himself into that name of getting the power of conference job that he probably is looking for, whether at Texas or elsewhere for him. To move on over to the Kentucky Wildcats, it's it's getting worse and worse, it seems like, for this program. Uh, a a three-point win against LSU on Tuesday. That really should have been a better margin, I felt like, for Kentucky. And it seemed that the Wildcats, I'll bet, pretty close margin throughout. They seemed like they had control of that game and nearly let us up away as well. I mean, they had a decent lead about midway through that second half, and they really failed to close out that comfortable margin, which really led concern into the game on Saturday against Alabama. You want to talk about terrible. This is the worst performance that Coach Cal's ever had at Kentucky. A 26-point loss, the largest margin defeat against Alabama in the Martin era for Kentucky. Just nothing went right. You want to look at shooting? Awful. Defense? Blech. Ball control? Blech. And then Oscar Sheeblay, one of seven on the field with only a couple of free throw attempts in which he made. He scored more, he scored as many points, I should say, from the free throw line than he did from the field. And we talked about this last week that when you don't utilize Audrey Shibwe, you're basically putting a win in a gift basket and giving it to your opposition. Now, that's not to say that Alabama didn't do a good job of neutralizing Shibwe. I mean, you look at that usage, I mean, tell me what else you need to know. I mean, <laughs> that's terrific. But, and it's not just all on Shibwe. I mean, we would be totally misstating this loss if we pinned it all on Oscar Shibwe. Jacob Toppin was 1 of 10 from the field. Kaysen Wallace was 1 of 13 from the field. Chris Livingston was 2 of 6. Shavita Wheeler was 7 of 14 from inside the arc. 
you look at, there's just so many problems here. And I mean, the only person you can give credit to is Antonio Reeves with 20 points. Four of seven from deep, three of six inside the arc. He should nowhere be your leading scorer. Nowhere mm. near it. And it's just, it's an embarrassing performance for Kentucky. I mean, yeah, you have such a such a talented uh, starting lineup here, and it's it's helmed by Sheboy, and it just seems like they're almost they're almost allergic to using him properly. We went so so much in depth last week about talking how to use him, how to counter um, the other other defenses from you know if they rotate down, you know he could you know perhaps set up his teammates for an open basket. He didn't even have an assist in this game. I mean, you, you had, he had six rebounds that's that's the most he did he turned the ball over he was one of seven he just wasn't used well you know i'm not trying to pin this on him but he just wasn't used well yeah and, and that negatively yeah affected and, his. And, and i'm and one thing i made i add the six six rebounds for Sheboy, this isn't a you know typical forward i mean six rebounds for oscar Sheboy is quite frankly pitiful mm-hmm. <laughs> i mean that's the standard he set for himself when you consider that to be a pitiful number um just you know, I know you were going into Sheboy. Just what did you think of the the rest of the main players? I mean, just an, an awful performance from them too. I mean, awful. I mean, you look at you look at lines like one for thirteen, uh, like zero for six from behind the arc, um, from Case and Wallace, Jacob Toppin underwhelmed, Severe Willier he did seven seven for sixteen. I mean, it's it's a lot of attempts, more than double the attempts that Sheboy had, which is which is not something you want. It's it's just disappointment throughout that whole lineup. Like you had that bright spot there with Antonio Reeves, um, but besides that, just the whole entire lineup underwhelming. I mean, they they did not hold a lead in this entire game, and for that to happen to this this Kentucky team is so surprising. Like just considering you know how they were perceived coming into the season, um, how they've been held throughout this season to be you know this could be a really dominant team. Uh, especially with Seaway coming back as part way through the season, he was supposed to be the answer. He was supposed to be the player that is going was going to lead Kentucky um, to become a dominant team throughout the season, and it feels like they've just been going down and down instead of up and up. Um, and it's it, it it all really I think is on how Coach Cal is using is using Seaway is using his players. I I think the system here is not set up for him. And it's not like he hasn't had dominant bigs in the past. You know, he, he's had some great bigs. Um, like, you know, you think you think of that team um, with Carl Anthony Towns years and years ago about how he was able to to use him perfect, perfectly. This is, this is a big, I'm not comparing them to as similar players, but they are both dominant in their own right. But it feels like he lost that touch um, for having you know, great forwards, great bigs. He's had great guards in the past couple years. I mean, you look at that team a couple years ago with Tyrese Maxey, um, Emmanuel Quickly, Ashton Haggins. I mean, those were some good, great backcourt teams. He's almost lost this frontcourt touch. Yeah, and and I want to look at this in the bigger picture with this Kentucky team, a team whose top three wins, Ken Palm-wise, are Michigan on a neutral court in London, LSU at home, Yale at home, then you get to a team like Duquesne at home way back on November 11th and then awful teams everywhere else. It feels like to me that the ceiling of Kentucky is being a team like Michigan. And, and Michigan's not good either. I mean, I mean they're 9-6 and six with their own problems. That's not good. If that's going to be your signature win come March, forget it. 
you may not make the tournament. And I'm being dead serious. I mean, this is awful. Like, it just feels like to me that that's their absolute ceiling. You, th- you think that's true? I, I, I think that's true as well. I mean, if, if Michigan is your signature win and you look at some of the, 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 the teams that Michigan has struggled against, that's... That is a it's a terrible resume right now, and I I have to agree. If they do make March, if they do make March Madness, if they do make the tournament at the end of the year, it is going to be a pretty controversial pick. I I feel like it would be a a pick where many would say that they only made it because of their 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 name and their image rather than how they actually played on the court. Yeah, Kentucky. You look at them; they're forty fourth in Kempom right now without a quadrant one win in four opportunities. The only thing you can really say about Kentucky that can give you some kind of confidence that can, they can make the tournament is that they still have opportunities. They have six more quad, seven more, I should say, quadrant one games. But again, we're not. This is a kind of situation where we're talking about the Tennessees, the Kansases, Arkansas, Tennessees of the world. I mean, if, if they're going to get a quadrant one win, it feels like a road game against Mississippi State on February fifteenth. And you're going to be begging for Florida to stay in the top 75 for that road game on February 22nd. It feels like this year could come down to those two games for them. Because right now, I have no confidence. I mean, sure, they can obliterate bad teams. I mean, they show that against Louisville. They show that against Florida A&M. And they're likely going to show it on Tuesday against South Carolina. But when you put them up against the Tennessees of the world, they have so much proving to do, it's unbelievable. And we've seen plenty of teams get their signature wins in conference play. We, we, we're going to see it time and time again. So many Big 12 teams are doing it right now. A team like Providence is doing it right now. But it just seems so inconceivable to me that a team like Kentucky is in this spot. I mean, it, it, you're looking at the, these teams like Tennessee, Arkansas, these in-conference teams where... You expect them to, of course, they're most likely going to lose their road games. And are they going to beat them at home? I really think that I, they're, they're going to struggle at home as well. I mean, they haven't shown a, a sense of urgency as of late. And they, they don't act, they don't carry themselves like a championship or a, like a, a team that, not a championship team, a team that deserves a shot to even try to go for the, ch- the championship. Absolutely. It's 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 embarrassing. That is that's the that's the best way I can put it. It's an embarrassing season for Kentucky and a and a, a prominent program in the last couple decades in the history of college basketball. This has been one of the most dominant dynasties under Coach Cal, and it's it, it he's almost lost his flair. It seems like it, it really feels like there's a changing of the guard in the SEC, mm-hmm. and we're really seeing it this year. And the raising for that probably requires a whole new episode <laughs> in the offseason when we really start to dive into the portal and how NIL is shaping that again. It, but that's what it feels like. It's a changing of the guard with the Alabamas, the Auburns. Even Missouri is having a great year. It, it, it's so inconceivable what Kentucky is doing. I mean, there's hardly a way to explain it right now. There truly, truly is. And another blue blood who's having some trouble is Duke. And they also had a pretty bad week and really headlined by a 24-point loss in Raleigh against NC State in a place that has become so difficult for Duke as a program to play in. Now, losses in five of their last seven at Raleigh, no consecutive wins whatsoever within that. 
I mean, this but they go deeper than this. I mean, this is NC State's largest margin of victory over Duke since '78. Duke's largest losing margin to an unranked team since '72. I mean, this was quite frankly awful. And you look at their major stars at the freshman class. Derek Rively had a measly one point. Uh, junior Jeremy Roach in this conversation as well, just four points. Freshman Mark Mitchell had six. Sophomore Jalen Blakes, who's been, he got the start in this game. Looks like he's working his way up. Only two points. Tylee's Proctor, five points. Just abysmal. Just absolutely abysmal from Duke. And 21 turnovers. That's the story right there. You turn the turn over 21 times in conference play. You're going to lose so many more times than you win. So many more times. I mean, this is a game right here where they did not hold a lead for even a second. They NC State got out, they started hot, and they just kept the foot on the gas. And, you know, you really attribute it to the turnovers there. I mean, Duke had 21 turnovers to NC State's six. I mean, that 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 tells you the story right there. Duke didn't shoot terribly. I mean, 33% from behind the arc. Yeah, they kind of struggled from it within the arc. Um... They rebounded pretty well as well. It's just these turnovers. You can't have that. A 21 to 10 turnover to assist ratio is never going to win you a, a conference game of basketball, even just a game of basketball. You cannot have that. And that th this turnover issue doesn't just apply to this game. This this is a issue for Duke, but you know, specifically in this game, it, it really shined. Yeah, I mean, 21 turnovers would win you an intermental game in the SDFC. No. I mean, it just wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, nevertheless, a ACC game against a really solid NC State team. I mean, for crying out loud, just absolutely abysmal. And then the follow-up. Oh, boy, this was rough. In a game that Duke seemed to have a decent amount of control of in the first half, not winning by too much, but they had control... All of a sudden, Boston College in the second half puts together a 16-2 run and things get really interesting in the final minute where Duke needed some really clutch plays to win it in the final minute. Just, I mean, not a good sign at all. And some of the freshmen who played poorly against NC State stepped up here against Boston College. You look at Mark Mitchell with 14 points and six boards. You look at a player like Kyle Filipkowski with 15 points and nine rebounds, a couple of assists as well. Derek Whitehead, once again, played pretty solidly with 18 points. And, oh, man, it's just so hard for me to find the words as to why Duke is struggling to win against Boston College yeah. towards the end of the game. It's, it's so hard to find that explanation. I mean, just, I mean, ugh. I mean, they led by 14 at one point in this game. And, you know, they, they almost completely, oh, they fell apart, almost completely fell apart. But back to that turnover thing, 15 turnovers in this one. I mean, that's, that's, that's not something you can do. I mean, it's not as bad as 21, but if if having 21 turnovers is, is the, oh, it's not as bad as that, that's a terrible sign for a team. This is this is a, an issue for Duke. I mean, this is a team that is 104th in the nation in assist-turnover ratio. 104th. Duke entered this season 7th in the AP preseason polls. They should not be ranked anymore. 104th in assist turnover ratio. The, the, the teams around them are teams like, like like Troy. Teams like that you don't expect a program like Duke to be surrounded by. And assist turnover ratio is one of those telling factors. It is, it is one of the most important things for a team 
to have success. The teams that lead the nation in that are some of the top teams, like 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 Kansas, like Tennessee. And not coming top 100 in the nation is wild. And I, it starts with the turnovers. I think it starts with underwhelming players. I mean, they had a, such a, you know, looking at, at this year's recruiting class, you know, it, it was a lot of excitement. But Kyle Filipowski, he was advertised as a big with, you know, he had advertised as elite passing and vision. I mean, he's been scoring pretty decently. He leads the team in scoring and rebounding. But he's averaging an assist per game. And coming in, they thought he was going to be a type of, center that can really distribute the ball can facilitate and open up the system and that's not what he's been able to do Derek Whitehead he's been he's been passable I mean he's had some really good performances Derek Lively has been underwhelming to the fullest extent I mean you you look at a player he's has about like 16 17 minutes per game and he he, he maybe has a few buckets at most per game it's it's this recruiting class that I think they really depended on them so so much. You know, they had some great four stars, great five stars coming in, and that's where they put all their focus in. They've just been really underwhelming. It's a similar thing that we almost saw at the beginning of season with UCLA, um, but you know they've had players stepping up like Adam Bona. He's been stepping up for them, but no one from Duke has really been stepping up. I mean, besides Filipowski, who's been scoring decently, and Whiteheads, who's been doing his role you have these disappointments and i think i think that's where it went wrong for duke this year is they put too many eggs in one basket for their 2022 recruiting class and it just hasn't been giving them what they need what's happened to duke too i think is also very weird when you look at this team as one of the elite teams in the country in offensive rebounding percentage at close to 38% they're also a top 20 team nationally at free throw percentage they're shooting their free throws at a at a 78% clip which is nationally elite for a team. There's just so many things going on here that I think is contributing to this. And, I, I mean, I just don't know where you could really put this Duke team right now. They're certainly not a top 25 team. Mm-mm. They're not right now. That's not to say that they're not a tournament team. I think mm-hmm. they still are. Absolutely are. The talent is there. The wins are there. I mean... Neutral site against Xavier and Iowa, and then home against Ohio State. That's a really good non-conference resume right there. Just those three wins. And then there are two non-conference losses. Neutral site Kansas, neutral site Purdue. They have the resume. What they can't do in ACC play is go on and wreck it. I mean, they're not necessarily wrecking it in... Road loss to Wake Forest. Road loss to NC State. That's fine. I mean, I mean, for, for all intents and purposes, that's fine. Like, it's not like that's going to kill them. They're still a top 25 team in net. And while Wake Forest is in quad two, NC State, that game will firmly be quad one. We're not talking any resume-breaking things here or, or any make-or-break stuff for the tournament. But if we're going to have... Any confidence going into this team at all, they need to go out and defeat a Ken Palm Top 100 team immediately. I mean, the last time they did that was over a month ago in New York City against Iowa. And now, while well, they've only had two opportunities since then, I mean, we're not going to pretend to be a season elite conference. I mean, that's what's making these next couple weeks so huge for them. This week in particular, two of the surprise teams in the conference, Pittsburgh at home, Clemson on the road. You want to talk about a statement week if you can beat both of those teams? I think that would be a big statement showing that while we're struggling a little bit, hey, we could be we could be great too. 
And what's not to say that this team could take a trajectory similar to North Carolina, to where they scare everyone of this of bad losses and really troubling talk, and then rise up in the later weeks of the year. I mean, what's not to say they can follow that trajectory? I still think anything can happen with this Duke team, but right now it's so hard to have trust in them because of what they've done as of late. I mean, they haven't been a quality team in over a month. You get two big opportunities like this. I mean, I would expect that they take advantage of at least one. Yeah, I'm, and I'm not necessarily writing them off for the rest of the season. I feel like they can still find their direction here. But it'll take going 2-0 in this next week. After that, they have a home game versus Miami. They're going into Virginia Tech a couple days after that. You know, you have some great opportunities to kind of turn it around. Um, but are they going to be able to turn it around? Are they going to be able to find their direction? Who are their main players? Who, are their, who, are, who do you need to depend on? That's going to be the questions here. Um, and if they, if they can somehow pull it off and, and start to find their find their way back in, in this conference, then all the power to them. If they can get some great momentum going into March, that would be huge for them. This isn't a team like Kentucky where I'm, would, they're getting written off for the entire season and possibly miss the tournament. This is, this is not even in the same conversation as them. This is still a team that, you know, you could see in the, you know, power 36, you know, top 36 team of the nation. But for right now, they are not. They should not be voted top twenty-five. Yeah, I, I don't think so either. I mean, they, they will remain in my top thirty-six for sure. But if they want to beat both Pittsburgh and Clemson, I think they might get back in. They may re-enter after a week, just because of if they can prove something. I mean, this could be all on the freshman and John Shire's development. This could be all on that. And I'm so fascinated to see where this goes. Does this get worse over the next week? Does Duke become an average team by any and all accounts over the next two weeks before a, a easy road game by some standards against Georgia Tech. Miami wouldn't be able to tell you that, but certainly should be an easier road game. A lot of things with Duke, and I think there's a lot of ways this can go too, so really uh, we'll have to wait and see what happens over with Duke over the next couple of weeks. To move on over to the Mountain West now, the last undefeated team in the country was New Mexico until they lost twice this week. Uh, that first loss for them coming against a Fresno State team on the road pretty much a couple of days or a day after they became the final undefeated team in the country. I mean, this undefeated ended, ended quick. I mean, Purdue got their loss against Rutgers and then New Mexico quickly. Exit the undefeated ranks themselves in a game that I just felt like was more on Fresno State winning it. I mean, Jamal Mashburn, Jalen House, they're two star guards. They, I thought they played really well in this game for the most part. Jalen House, though, one assist, six turnovers. That's a big deal in a game like this that gets close on the road with a huge target on your back. And they're going to need to watch Fresno State very carefully. That's currently a quad three game. More on the resume in a second, though, as Saturday, New Mexico took a home loss for the first time against a UNLV team that's really proven they can beat solid teams. I mean, I'm sure you'll remember the upset when they got at home against Dayton uh, way back in the mid middle of November. And they had taken losses in three out of four before defeating New Mexico on the road. And this is a really solid win for UNLV. I thought this one was a little more on the Lobos than the game against Fresno State. I mean, you look at not five of 19, I should say, from beyond the arc, a negative assist to turnover ratio. 
I mean, you still had solid performances from Mashburn and House, all things considered. And Morris Udizi also had a really solid game. The 6'8 senior at 22 points, 8 of 12 from the field, 6 of 10 from the line with 13 rebounds. I mean, he played phenomenally for, for New Mexico. So these are two games, and you look at the grand scheme of things, while they were competitive, now it puts New Mexico in a bit of an interesting situation. Like I said, Fresno State currently a quad three game. You need Fresno State to be in the top 135 to move to quadrant two. Fresno State nowhere near that, as we're talking right now on a Sunday night. And I think for New Mexico, too, you also need a clear-cut top of the conference to emerge. The great news for New Mexico is on Sunday, you have five different teams, including New Mexico in this conference, in the net top 50. Four of them in the net top 35. San Diego State at 24, Utah State 26, Nevada 25, Florida State 35, and all of UNLV is just outside that top 50. I mean, when we look at it from a net perspective and a resume perspective, the Mountain West Conference is a really, really, really good conference. I mean, you're talking at a conference whose average net ranks fifth in the country, yes, better than the Pac-12, and way better than the ACC, with, with six teams who are really, really solid. And you just look at it from this perspective, and I should give some updated numbers. Uh, so I'm going to say 23, and then New Mexico at number 50, UNLV at 53, and Utah State, Nevada, and Boise, they all remain the same from day to day. And then you have a Colorado State who shoots outside the top 100. That's really where the cutoff begins. You, I think for New Mexico, you need that cutoff to continue. You need this top six that's formed to really stay as a top six. Because if you get a few more teams falling off and you get a few more New Mexico wins in, the, in conference that don't look quite as good, what's not to say that, well, for New Mexico, having three quad ones now, what's not to say that cut that in half, put some of those in quad two, then you start getting into the conversation of, well, you don't have that many quality wins. If you if you lose more than half of those three, you know, you get the two and two in the quadrant one. I mean, what's not to say that you have a bad out of conference not strength of schedule compared to the other bubble teams? You have the one quad three loss. What's not to say this thing can go south? Yeah, I think the one thing that say New Mexico within the grand scheme of things is that their conference is strong analytically, and because of that, I really do believe that New Mexico has a bigger margin of error than some people would make you out to believe. I mean, and luckily for New Mexico, they have a, a, a week-long break after these two losses to kind of recuperate. Um, but then they come right back in with a road game against San Diego State. You know, you have Boise State in that week. You have some of these, you know, these top teams that you talked about. And I, I, I think you're completely right with you. They, that top six has to really stick um, as a top six. And, you know, for the, for the sake of their resume, for the sake of, you know, making that, that push towards the end of the season... Um, that means the world to the Lobos. I mean, just looking at these two losses, you know, the Fresno State one, that, that wasn't necessarily, a, you know, a bad New Mexico game. They were just evenly matched throughout the, the whole game, but they just didn't take enough threes necessarily. They didn't get to the line a lot. That's where their loss was. And, of course, that UNLV, that is a tough, tough team right there. So, you know, right outside that net, that net top 50, New Mexico, I still don't have a lot of like a lot of questions for this team, really. I mean, yes, they lost that undefeated spot, but this is still a really, really, really solid team. Yeah. Uh, I wholeheartedly, wholeheartedly believe that. I think that this is 
um, still one of the most unexpected and one of the most exciting teams, one of the most fun teams that I, I, I've been rooting for so far this season. Um, and, you know, despite these losses, that's still going to continue. That's still, this is still a fun team. They have some pretty good games coming up, especially that at San Diego State game. Um, and I, 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 I support this team. Yeah, and yet it's also true because of these two losses and their all-conference schedule that they're in the bubble. You know, but you, you can say both things. You can say that a team of New Mexico deserves to be in the tournament while also realizing they're on the bubble right now with those two losses, quad two and quad three in those respective departments. And that's what makes these Q1 games so important. I mean, if the quadra stay the same, you have six Q1s left, three Q2s, two Q3s, and three Q4s left. The Q4s are mandatory wins. The Q3s are mandatory wins. Now it's all about what you do in those nine remaining games. If everything stays the same. If everything stays the same. And we do have to make that very, very clear. It's very important now. So we're getting to a spot to where you need, New Mexico needs to prove they can win a lot of these quality games in their conference. I just think that's, that's where we are right now with this Lobo team. Still a really good team, but now they got to prove their worth. Yes, you went 13-0, and but now you got to prove yourself as okay, now we really got to win. You know, we really have to win and, and, and really prove ourselves. Great players. And, of course, Jalen House, the former Sun Devil. I mean, it would be mm-hmm. foolish for us ASU students not to support him mm-hmm. and hope he plays well and represent as a former Sun Devil, not a Mexico Lobo. But it really is all about what you do. And Saturday's game at San Diego State has so much stakes. I think, really, really for both sides. When you look at a San Diego State team who's actually got a really solid resume, I mean, the neutral site win against Ohio State and that UNLV game does carry weight for them New Year's Eve as a quad one road game, and I suspect it will remain that way unless UNLV really takes a steep a, a steep drop-off. And so, they, I mean, San Diego State has six Q1s, four Q2s, four Q3s, and only one Q4. I mean, they got a lot of opportunity. And it shows to the strength of the Mountain West Conference. We talked a lot about it last year in the program about just how strong this conference was. And it's, and it's becoming the same thing now. The one thing for the Mountain West is don't blow it. You know, don't let the Fresno States of the world get more wins against quality teams. Wyoming's been awful. I mean, this is downright awful. I mean, why have they started to pick things up again and, and cause chaos? I mean, this could go way down way quickly for this conference. And as a result, it could have some of that backward repercussions for other leagues, teams in the league, like New Mexico. And that's where I get concerned about the margin of error. I mean, if you were to end this season in a few weeks, New Mexico's margin of error would be very slim. But because you have a month, you need to prove yourself. And it's not like you have a ACC team here, or a Big Ten team, or a Big 12 team. You have a Mountain West team in a conference that while it is coming off its greatest year in recent memory for tournament bids, not necessarily tournament results, but for tournament bids, you got to prove yourself. And that's where a team like New Mexico, I think, really needs to start winning some games. You can absolutely be proud of the Mountain West if SDSU, Utah State, Nevada, Boise State, New Mexico wins games against each other, wins against the, the bottom feeder teams, all of them in that, in that top 50, and you get three or four out of the five in. You can absolutely respect that. And I think that's where we are right now. And New Mexico, at least analytically, is just on the outside of that. And I think that's where the Lobos have that slim margin of error right now. 
They got to prove themselves. That starts at San Diego State Saturday for me. That's where it starts, and it needs to continue for the Lobos to continue earning their surefire tournament craft. Let's move on to the Big East Conference and the Providence Friars. Who saw this match coming again? I mean, who saw this coming again from the Providence Friars in a in a in a building that has been renamed to the Amica Mutual Pavilion? Absolute boo! Still a Dunkin' Donuts Center to all of our hearts. Providence goes down and beats UConn, a team that you are lucky to limit. Providence limits them to 61 points, and just an absolutely terrific effort. UConn did not help themselves. 5 of 22 from three, and Providence surely didn't help themselves. Just 10 of 31 from inside the three-point arc. The Providence found a way to get free throws knocked down. They needed to of 29 of 35. Bryce Hopkins with 13 of 15 from the line. Ed Croswell was 9 of 10 from the free throw line. 13 and 13 from him. He was absolutely terrific. As was Bryce Hopkins with 27 points in the game. And Noah Locke also with 17. Also terrific. But Providence in that second half just found a way to just control that game. Almost easy victory over a team that many people still consider an elite team nationally. Is one of one of those wins that now becomes a signature win, especially for a Providence team that in the non-conference, their signature win. Oh gosh, where is it? Uh there is none. <laughs> they lost all three of the games against good opponents that they that they faced, including a disappointing St. Louis team. And so now they're just getting these signature wins out of nowhere, just flying left and right in the Big East Conference. And they got a little fortune at home against St. John's on Saturday, but they're 6-0 now in the Big East Conference for the first time in program history. It's just when you think Providence is done and that they're done providing the goods, they just come out like this. It's remarkable. I mean, yeah, looking at that game, it really did come down to you know, maybe getting a little bit of a, a a nice whistle when they go inside the arc because, you know, they did struggle from inside the arc, you know. Um, but they shot decently well from, from the three-point line. They got to the free-throw line 16 more times than UConn. Um, and that's 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 really the difference there. I mean, with a 12-point win, getting those, those boosted amount of um, attempts from the free-throw line, that really, really helps out a team. And I, I really think that was perhaps part of their their game plan of course you know struggling inside you know that could be from good defense maybe they were fouling maybe they weren't that'll that that can be up to the fans to to argue about but it was a double digit win over UConn one of the the last uh, couple uh undefeated team I think they were the the third last fourth last they they really went down you know to the wire and this is a great win for Providence they also put up 103 points against a ranked Marquette team um, and then that is another game where they shot they shot 49 free throws. They went 35 of 49 from the free throw line. They did much better inside the arc in this game, of course, uh, which led to that double overtime win. Um, but they, they're starting to get these really, really big wins, um, which is great for this Providence team. You know, they, they their next game is against Creighton, that team that, you know, we, we've talked about Creighton a lot, a team that started off great and then kind of kind of took a took a tank. Um, but they've, they've been red hot and, you know, they have a, a decent upcoming schedule. You know, you have games like Marquette, you have Xavier in a couple of weeks, you know, they have a, a good amount, um, to prove still as, you know, a, another one of the, the these teams that you saw last year, they had a magical run. Could this, this could be another magical run for them as well in this conference tournament. Yeah. Conference. And that Marquette win, there will be people that argue that Marquette deserves to be back in the rankings on Monday. I mean, what, what Marquette's done since that loss of Providence? Four straight. 
no signature win that Marquette team is now 13 and 4 and 5 and 1 in the Big East Conference. That's a, that just adds to what Providence has done. I mean, they gave Marquette their only Big East loss to this point. And that's huge. That's absolutely huge for this Providence team. And what, what this season is proving is that not only is this Providence ride not a one off, it's really proven that Ed Cooley is one of the best coaches in the country in finding talent in the portal developing them, and then turning them into significant producers. I mean, look what Bryce Hopkins was last year at a Kentucky program hardly getting minutes. And he's turned him into a major contributor who is scoring at a very solid clip. I mean, the 27 points against UConn, the Marquette game mentioned, he had 29 points there. I mean, and the game before that, I'd say in Hallback in December 17, he had 24 in that one. He's proving himself to be a really, really consistent contributor. You can't ask for much more than that out of a guy who hardly got minutes at a place like Kentucky. You can hardly ask anything more than that. And also guys like Devin Carter at a South Carolina program who just wasn't doing all that much. Carter had some good performances there. Cooley sees that, brings in the Providence. And Carter is a huge contributor. He scored at least 11 points in the last five games. And 19 or more in four out of the last five. Just just absolutely terrific as far as that sort of thing is concerned. And then there's also Noah Locke. A guy who's now at his third destination after a couple of years at Florida and then a season at a Louisville team, while nowhere near as bad as this year's team, was not good under Chris Mack. Now at Providence... He is also turning into a solid contributor. Not nearly as consistent as Carter or Hopkins, but Noah Locke has found his craft at a very solid clip. 17 against Connecticut, 20 against St. John's. 5 of 8 from 3 in that game against St. John's as well. This is now two consecutive years where Ed Cooley has done everything he can, identify talent, develop them, they become major contributors. That, to me, says everything about this Providence program right now. Is that Ed Cooley, you better keep him under wraps for as long as you can. Because he's terrific for your program. And the analytics are starting to pick up on him this year. I mean, after 17 games last year, this program was 15-2 and only 50th in Kempom. Now they're 30th in Kempom, 14-3. They have lost a game more after 17 than they did last year. And now they're being so much more respected by the analytics... And I suspect they'll be ranked on Monday. I um, get the suspicion of that. And uh, and a, a lot of this goes down back to free throw shooting. I mean, they take the fifth. They've had the fifth most amount of free throw attempts in the country. They've made the second most. This team is an expert at playing inside the arc and getting to the line. And they 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 match it up with good shooting from beyond the arc. It's just it's a great offensive system that Cooley has kind of instilled in this team. You know, it it's it's working. To perfection, almost. You know, you see that with that that win against UConn. This is a great system with talented players like like Hopkins that he was able to grab out of the transfer portal. I mean, it's really it's really an impressive thing to see. Absolutely, and this is gonna be a tough week for Providence. I mean, you're at a Creighton team who has started to really pick the pick things up with Kyle Crenner back in the lineup, and you get the rematch at Marquette next Wednesday. We'll talk a lot more about that game next week. But within those two games, at Creighton, at Marquette, right now, what is kind of your suspicion how the Friars may do within that two-game stretch? 
I think that they pick up a win against Creighton. I think it's going to be a good battle as Creighton has kind of sort of to climb back. But I, I think this 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 game against Marquette, I could see them dropping it. I I it's a very good possibility with such a great um, battle for them in their on their home court that I think Marquette could seek out a a vengeance here uh, on their on their own home court. Um, that one's going to be a great game regardless. I, I do see them dropping that, but I, I see them beating Creighton to pick up their 10th in a row win. I think what you're going to see happen is you're going to see a couple of close road losses. I, I think Creighton, where I think they're at the point now to where they need to start be getting res- not necessarily nationally respected in the top 25, but they're right around that top 36 area with room to grow, with Kaufmaner back in that lineup. I mean, you've looked at what they've proven against Minor opposition, dominates Butler at home, dominates DePaul on Christmas Day at home, dominates Satan Hall at home. They're, they're, they're finding the rhythm again. And that UConn game was a decently competitive game throughout a decent part of it. I mean, UConn ended up finishing it out uh, early, about midway to the second half, just absolutely finishing it out and just leaving Craig in the dust. But Craig was in that game for about 25 to 28 minutes. Uh, in that game, I mean, they, I thought they played a solid performance against against UConn on the road, and that's all you can really ask. I mean, I mean, UConn's terrific. I mean, right now the conference standings are in a spot where they may not be reflecting a lot of this mass chaos, but that's kind of where we are. UConn's still an elite team in this country. They are, and for Creighton to go in on the road, play 25, 28 minutes of really competitive basketball on the road against UConn, I think that shows something that they're developing, they're fighting the rhythm again. I think Saturday you might see an upset. I, I really do. And if that is where we're going to call it, if Providence is ranked, if that is where we're going to call it. And I think it probably should be called that of Crane right now 9-7. and seven. But yet, they're still in the Kampom Top 20. So analytics are going to say Crane's going to win this game. And what else do we know here? Um, and then that Marquette, I mean, that's going to be a fiery atmosphere of revenge in Marquette's mind. I mean, I mean that's really what I think of that. So, I mean, but two road losses... 14 and 5, 6 and 2 in the conference. You have nothing to be panicked about about Providence unless these are two blowouts. And they won't be. Neither of them will be blowouts, in my opinion. And I and I think we're going to be talking about Providence deep into the season as a really, really good basketball team. And for Ed Coy to do it again after they were picked fifth in the Big East Conference, which in this year's Big East, fifth won't be enough for a tournament spot, in my opinion. It won't be. It might be enough of that 15 is province. It might be enough. But the, I mean, the, the bottom portion of this conference is not that great. And so for province to pull it out again, I think is absolutely remarkable. And another program is pulling out remarkable things as we thank you again for listening uh, to the Bonanza. Kansas State. Uh, we talked about them earlier, their performance against Texas, which was terrific. Uh, but that was really the middle of a couple of overtime wins in Big 12 play that really personify this grinded-out conference. Overtime at home against a West Virginia team who I'm starting to be a little concerned about, if I'm being quite honest, uh, especially after the West Virginia's game against Kansas on Saturday. And then overtime win at a Baylor program who is now 0-3 in the conference. We'll talk a lot more about Baylor in just a little bit. But for this Kansas State program, I mean, we're, we're going to be talking about this program as a top 20, maybe even top 15 team, because of how chaotic the scene of the sport is right now, of teams winning and losing games pretty much as they please. 
right now with Kansas State, this is another team very similar to Providence to where their signature non-conference run is very shaky. Nevada, LSU on a neutral court, not great. But you get a home win against West Virginia, you drop 116 at Austin, and you win in overtime at Waco. You have your signature wins. We have so much more of this conference season left in the Big 12 where you can easily grab 10 quad one wins. Easily, if you're a competent team in that conference. What's not to say that Kansas State can't be a top 20 team right now? I mean, they have shown that they are more than competitive in the Big 12 conference. They can win games in the toughest conference environments. That alone is impressive to to me. I mean, yeah, this this team has really shown uh, through this early conference schedule that the sky is really the limit. I mean, they've really found themselves um, so far. They they've played. They haven't played Kansas yet. They haven't played Ohio State yet. Two of the other, you know, more top teams in this conference. But Baylor is a perennial great program. I mean, Texas is one of the top programs in this. In this, in the nation, I mean, West Virginia, they they've had some struggles. You know, they got hot near the middle of the season, but they've kind of trailed off a little bit. But these are three great, great wins for them, and you know, it it really boils down to just their their scoring their scoring load. Um, and you talk about that 116 points that they dropped, no overtime, just just in regulation when they went down to the Moody Center and beat the red hot hot Texas Longhorns. I mean, this is a team that can put the ball in the basket like no other. And you know, their defense might not necessarily, you know, reflect that same sort of dominance. They do let up a lot of points, but that that might just boil down to the tempo that they play with. You know, they have great players like Keontae Johnson, who's been having an absolutely great season, averaging 19.7 rebounds. Uh, Marquise Noel is a great, great backcourt member where he's averaging nine assists, and that that really means a lot for them, um, as they you know they facilitate the ball really well, and that that really adds to their their offense. They have great shooters all around the floor, great scores, um, and this Kansas State system it it's really you know it's proven itself in the Big Twelve. They have a lot to prove, as it is you know the most dominant conference in college basketball right now by a long shot. This is a conference where we've talked about you know eight possibly uh, bids in March, you know, and Kansas State is really cementing themselves um, for a shot to be one of those those seven or eight that make it. Um, this is a great team to watch night in and night out. They have different scores that can go out and, and lead the team every night, and that's exactly what you want to see. Um, this is just a, a Wildcats team that's that's just been dominant so far, and I, you know, of course, being in the Big 12, they're going to have a, a difficult schedule, and I, I think that they can really handle that task. Yeah, and there's no doubt that this Kansas State team's proven a lot. And and Texas and Baylor also are top 100 tempo teams as well, so kind of getting to that high-scoring game, those the matchups kind of um, embrace itself for a higher-scoring game. But really, for me, it's kind of, why now? I mean, this is an offense that failed to break 80 against Radford, they filled a break seventy against California, UMKC, Kansas City. They filled a drop seventy against LSU. They filled a drop sixty against Wichita State. I mean, it's like, what now? How is it clicking on so many cylinders? Is it the shooting? Is it something else? I mean, I just don't know for how long this is sustainable. I mean, when you hardly play anyone outside of your conference, which is a bold move for a team in the Big Twelve to not get that preparation 
before you get in your conference slate, which is the gauntlet. You get these, you get these three big wins in your conference, your conference slate out. You drop 90 plus against two of the better teams in the conference on the road. I mean, it's like you get into a stretch where it's like the offense is like, okay, eh, in some cases. I just, I just don't understand, one, how this team has just risen with their offense to get into this conversation where because of how murky the waters are, people could legitimately put them in the top 15. And I just don't understand how this has become sustainable. I mean, I do suspect the win home against Oklahoma State. But what happens if they go to TCU? What happens there? I mean, TCU is still a great team in their own right, and they can compete with anyone in the conference too. I just don't know where this goes for Kansas State, if this is sustainable enough. And credit has to be given because it's a really experienced team with guys like Marquise Noel and Keontae Johnson who have done phenomenally. Uh, this season. Also, Desi Sills has been very good for this team. But not to say I'm doubting Kansas State a little bit here because I'm certainly going to put them way higher than I normally do for debutantes in my top 25. But I just have this lingering doubt of why now when you couldn't break 80 against some of the worst powered conference teams in this country and also a few mid-majors. That's kind of where I'm wondering here. Sure, some of those games didn't lend themselves to possessions, you know. I mean, but I, I mean, I just find it very interesting that it's now for Kansas State. It could be, it could perhaps be sort of a iron sharpens iron kind of situation that we have talked about with this this dominant Big Twelve, where you know the, these teams are going to make each other better. You know, maybe they were perhaps playing down. Uh, they weren't realizing that their their pure potential uh, in non conference in their non conference slates, but I mean I I do have the faith that they'll be able to keep it up. I mean of course I I don't expect a win in when they go into TCU. I mean after that they play Kansas, which you know that's one of the best teams of the nation here. They are going to struggle naturally because they have their they play so many great teams in this conference. But I think coming out of that, going into the tournament, I that's only going to make them better. And not just talking about the national tournament, I think looking at the conference tournament after going through this slate, that could that could make them better. It could make them you know a potentially top four team in this conference where you have teams like Kansas, where you have teams like Texas, where you have teams like Baylor and Iowa State and TCU. So such a strong company that it I think it can make Kansas State better than they would be. Yeah, that, that, that certainly is the case. And real quickly, a, a quick thought on Baylor. 0-3 <laughs> in the Big 12, a by, just a byproduct of how tough the Big 12 is? Something else? What are you thinking there? I, I don't think it's just how, how good the Big 12 is. I think it's just they are struggling in the times where it matters. I mean, you look at that, that first loss against Iowa State where you lose by 15. And, you know, that's one where they... they kind of battled in that for that first half you know Baylor they went back and forth but when it got to the second they just let Iowa State make any shot they wanted they got out, out shot from beyond the three-point arc where the Bears really couldn't make shots um they turned the ball over and that really you know led to a downward spiral where they lose it you know a really good TCU team they lose to that red hot Kansas State team in overtime I think they get behind in these battles and they, they kind of just start to flail in the second half. That's really something that they have to focus on um, in this Big 12 conference. I mean, they have 
you know, a couple games next up, you know, against a West Virginia team that's been going down an Oklahoma State team, they have time to figure it out until they get into a stretch where they play Kansas, Arkansas, Texas, back-to-back-to-back. They have time to start to figure out these sort of problems. It's just, can they? Yeah, and, and the next three games against three teams who, well, really four teams, I mean, West Virginia, I mean, West Virginia keeps going on their downward spiral. They seem to be on, I and mean, they're not getting anywhere. Oklahoma State, Texas, and Oklahoma, we've talked about this before, three teams that if it's only seven, they could be the three ones left out um, at the current trajectory that we're at. So kind of a big stretch before they get into that tough stretch that you mentioned with with Kansas and Arkansas and Texas. And that's kind of, that's kind of a big couple of weeks coming up for the Baylor Bears. And as we extend past the hour mark on this podcast to the Bonanza, one more topic, Indiana. Oh, man, it's been rough for them the last few. Um, they gave an eye on Thursday. I mean, there's maybe one way you might want to watch our speakers. I mean, just how? How do you blow that game? And it was kind of a slow, it was kind of a slow death to go from 23-4, I mean, 26-7, 28-7, to 11-0 run, 5 in the first half, chip it away, chip it away, 14-2 run, bam, ball game. 12-2 run late in that first, second half, I should say. Then Iowa wins it late. What? What is Indiana doing with that kind of a choke? What is Indiana doing? That's rude. I mean, and injuries, yes. I, I know. Indiana's a really injured team right now. But you have Trace Jackson Davis dropping 30-9. and Jalen Hood-Sharifo of 21. Decent performances from pretty much everyone else in a in a very thin seven deep rotation, and you couldn't beat Iowa. What? I mean, this is just a game. You know, they got down double digits, or they were up double digits. Sorry, and they just forgot how. Besides Trace Jackson Davis, of course, they just forgot how to function as as a team as a unit. You had a great performance from him, but. You just let up, you let Chris Murray walk all over your team. You let Philip Frabraca walk all over your team. You, it's, it's embarrassing. It it that's it's, it's mind blowing how how much of a, a a choke they were able to to let up here. I mean, they led this is a game you led led by twenty one. If you're leading by more than twenty in a game, there is zero excuse. I I can even imagine for you to just let a team come back like that, let alone an unranked Iowa team who had some great shining moments so far in the season, but has kind of lacked as of recent. This isn't a red-hot Iowa team that they were. This is just this is just Iowa. This is just Iowa. This is Chris Murray walking all over the Hoosiers, hitting any shot he wanted to, because they didn't know how to handle that that type of that type of lead, that type of pressure once they. Once Iowa got started in that second half and started to make that comeback, Indiana folded. That's that's not something you can do if you want to be one of these these top ranked teams in the country, and that's something that they expected to be. And of course, you know, missing Xavier Johnson, you don't know how long he's going to be out because of that foot injury. And now also Rice Thompson, mm-hmm. because of a leg injury he suffered in that game. Like I mean. That's just one of those things. I mean, even with the injuries, even with you being seven deep, six, seven, seven deep in that kind of game, 
you still got to win the game when you're up 21 at one point. You still got to win the game. And we should give some credit to Iowa with the road win of Rutgers. I mean, we should give them some credit. But let's not forget the big picture. Iowa's 10-6 and six with a home loss to Eastern Illinois. I mean, let's not forget the bigger picture. Iowa is nowhere near a tournament team. And you're going to let them do that to you? I mean, forget the injuries, which is a big problem for this team. There's something else going on here. And when you lose, Race Thompson indefinitely, Xavier Johnson pretty much indefinitely, you're putting a lot of pressure on guys like Tamar Bates, Jordan Toronto, Miller Cop. You're putting so much pressure on those guys. What's not to say this thing can come crashing down uh, on Indiana, especially with, with the game against Northwestern at home? which was, let's just say it, did not deserve to be a one-point loss. Not even close. I mean, you're looking at a situation to where before you start to get all the cluttered numbers in the Ken Palm win probability chart late game, this was an 11-point, 9-point kind of game in the, fi- in the final couple of minutes. I mean, Northwestern had this one pretty much on lock throughout the entire second half. This is just a, such an interesting thing of what happens when you're putting a lot of pressure on a couple of sophomores. And I don't like where this is going. I really don't. Because, I mean, Jalen hood though, he is him. He's terrific. And we knew Jackson Davis was him. We knew that. Where is your third reliable, consistent weapon? You don't have it right now. Without Thompson, without Johnson, you don't have it. It is, quite frankly, that simple. And you cannot win a lot of games in the Big Ten Conference when you're really that thin on consistent scoring options. I mean, this was George Rodano's first career start. I mean, that, that kind of shows you where his IU team right now is in the backcourt in depth. I mean, it's not there. And I mean, this is very concerning for Indiana now. In a Big Ten, that's only going to get tougher for, for IU. I mean, Penn State on the road. Penn State, not the greatest team, but it's a road game in a Big Ten. They're hard. Wisconsin at home. Yeah, they didn't prove anything against Illinois, but darn it, they got some decent wins, you know? Home against a Maryland team that is kind of bouncing up and down at will. And a row win at Marquette. Wisconsin's got wins. Pretty simple there. And then you go to Illinois next Thursday. This is going to get difficult for, for Coach Mike Woodson to try to figure this out with a younger-than-expected backcourt. What? I, ugh, it's hard for me to see Indiana getting out of this next couple of weeks before they get a somewhat easier game at Minnesota, feeling any more confident than I am right now. I'm not confident in it at all. There's no reason to be. Mm, I mean, and, you know, you mentioned the injury things. I mean, you know, Xavier Johnson had that foot foot injury mid-December. I mean, I, I really think he means a lot to this Indian offense with, you know, how good of a playmaker he is. Uh, Coach Woodson, he said he's, uh, he's optimistic about his eventual return, but it's still no timetable for him. It, this is the kind of thing that this team deals with. It's it's the most the most banged up team at least of the 
of the, the the better teams in this nation, and they're not playing like one of the better teams in this nation. And it's 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 mind boggling. Yeah, they're playing more like a team that's fearing for their tournament life. It, they really do. And what you lose in Johnson and now Race Thompson is that senior leadership that is so crucial to manage through a slate like this where you lose some games and maybe you lose confidence. This is a big issue now because you're, you're, you're relying on sophomores and freshmen in that backcourt to will you to the finish line, to will you into the field of 68. Hood Safino has clearly proven that he can do that as a freshman. He is terrific. The rest of the younger guys in that backcourt, there's no proof of it anywhere. And that's going to be so hard for this team and this program to find as the weeks develop. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they can pull out a couple wins. And we're feeling a lot better as we hope we make our way back into the Bill Austin Radio Studio across the hall. But right now, there's no reason to be comfortable talking about Indiana right now. And that's going to wrap up. It's been an extended edition of this show. We'll have our first picks um, of this year. And I know that sound, I don't know if you heard, but that's our B-wheel that just went off. <laughs> that's our B-wheel that, that's our B-wheel that just went off. So we're absolutely getting to that on our phones as we wrap up this edition of the College Basketball Bonanza. For Nick Keneally, as we're both taking our B-reels at the end of this program, my name is Nicholas O'Dell. Have a fantastic week. Hopefully, we'll be back live next week on, on BlazeYardLine.com from that Bill Austin Radio Studio. We surely hope we get back to that. Enjoy the week. We'll catch you Wednesday, actually. We're, we're turning the after party. There, there's a big announcement, casually. It just dropped. It just dropped. Another half-hour content for you. In case an hour and ten minutes wasn't enough. Uh, we'll have that. We'll talk a little bit more on Baylor. We scheduled that for the after-party show. And also Arizona and FAU. Can they get to national respect? Um, so now to get to our actual quote, Nick Kennedy and Nicholas Odell. Have a very good week, everyone.